Your Most Avid Reader by Bibi Berkey. So let's pick it up where we left off. Mariah is smuggled to London when Mrs Hadley and her children leave their country home for town. The sisters are complicit in the subterfuge, insisting the Hesiot girl accompanies them as their lady's maid. Their mother takes no interest in domestic matters and the plan is easily executed. Early autumn in London is magical. The streets peaceful and stately, the sun creeping through the shuttered windows. Behind one such window... In an attic room, Dominic and Mariah talk of their strange dreams, their excitement at having found each other. Do they do more than talk? I'm unsure about this. What do you think? I think I might be a little shy about sexual description, I'll be honest. I've always admired your sure hand in this department. What's definite is that this should be the most heartachingly beautiful chapter, full of love and contentment, with London as the sanctuary they have longed for. It must be brimming with devotion, not just to each other, but to the city itself. But here's the thing. When the time comes for them to leave and to return to Lincolnshire, the girl is gone. Dominic is frantic with worry, but the coach is waiting and they have no choice but to go without her. As the journey north progresses, his fear begins to harden into anger. He should have known that she had no intention of ever coming back. Now, read on. I shall never forgive you, sobbed Dominic. The road darkened. The villages that had insulated the capital from the wilderness beyond gave way to rutted fields, stripped bare to the ground with nothing to show for the summer just past. I'll never forgive you, he groaned under his breath. Now and again, hearing a whimper, his mother glanced across at him from the other side of the carriage. Dominic? she asked, but he wouldn't answer. Fanny, whose heart strained with the knowledge of her brother's agony, leant forward and clasped her mother's wrist and shook her head, warning her against further inquiry. The boy pushed himself back into the corner, tried to keep his emotions in check. Inside, he was reliving Mariah's betrayal was almost unbearable. After several miles of witnessing her son's badly concealed inner struggle, Mrs Hadley tapped on the knee. She addressed him in a voice so low that the girls barely caught a hint of what she was saying. Do not waste your life with suffering, my son. Learn to harden your heart. Dominic longed in that moment to crawl into her lap and to enjoy that closeness to femininity that he seemed perpetually to need. But she betrayed me, came the persistent yell within him, pushing his tears to the surface. His mother bent closer. Whatever it is that ails you, my boy, you can be sure that it does not ail her. She has been brought up to get the better of you. It's in her blood. His eyes widen. His heart stopped. How could she understand? 
feel a lightness. I feel relieved. Last night, Edward and I went to the local pub for dinner, and he held my hand across the table and said, You look a little more settled, my love. Are things moving along for you? And before I could utter a word, he added, I do hope so, and left it at that. I doubt he fancies entering the murky world of my psyche, bless him. We walked back along the lanes, and the world smelled divine. Is it because of you? Am I getting excited by a book that I haven't even written? Why has Mariah absconded? Why is Dominic behaving like such a hideous and morose teenager? How strange. I should be tearing my hair out because I've had no hand in it. And yet I feel almost exuberant. I'll tell you what. I feel particularly enthusiastic, not a word I often use, about the most sententious horde. I have such a good feeling about them. I want it to be a really romping kind of story, with the girls getting into all sorts of scrapes and growing up together. One of them shall be me and shall rise above them as the knowing one, the one that kisses goodbye to their childish dreams as she alone sails successfully into adulthood. Just got this. Sorry, been food shopping. What do you mean, kisses goodbye to their childish dreams? Not sure I understand that. Well, what I had in mind was that the girls spend a golden, prolonged childhood, full of hope, but near the end of the book, reality steps in and their dreams shatter. One of them, the autobiographical me, breaks through this endless spring and emerges into a glorious summer. We admire her. We understand her. What I'm saying is that she doesn't get a man. She gets something better. Success. Don't get me wrong, for most of the book it's glorious Byronic adventures all the way, not least of a sexual variety. I'm longing to produce a really shockingly vivid piece of writing. And yes, I do find writing about sex relatively easy. It's possibly because I no longer regard it with any awe whatsoever. So, what do you think? Why not? You seem lukewarm. That's not right. It's your book. The aim was always to furnish you with an idea. Quite rightly, you're taking it further and adding the imagination, making people come alive. Oh, stop it. I know lukewarm when I hear it. Are you worried? Is it because this flash of enthusiasm, there, I've used that word again, is making you think that it's the end of the line for us? Are you fretting that this is where we kiss goodbye? Well, you mustn't. You've opened my eyes to a whole new collaborative way of producing books, where we combine ideas and share out roles according to skills. I've already thought about it. I shall pay you. Surely, as a single mother, you'd love to work from home. And I'll give you a big mention in the acknowledgements, as a researcher par excellence. It's such a lovely job, don't you think? A fiction researcher. I bet people would give their eye teeth for such a jammy role. Funny, but it wasn't all that long ago that I was telling you about what an enviable job you had, and you weren't convinced. Now here you are, planning ahead, allotting duties. More to the point, you have a picture in your head of how your next book will look, even how the acknowledgements will read. Thank you. Thank you for the offer of a collaborative role, but I don't think a writer could really work that way. I think all you needed was a jolt. Perhaps telling me about all those men in your life, 
about Doug, Ryan, Scott and Edward, oiled the storytelling mechanism for you. Please don't worry about my finances or about crediting me. I never asked for anything. I simply offered something. I must stress one more time. You are the writer, not me. It may come as surprising from one so self-obsessed, but I feel I may have got to know, understood you, just a touch. And there's a sadness about you, and a selflessness. I don't think it comes purely from good nature, but from a kind of resignation in the face of disappointment. Am I right? You don't talk much about yourself, not because you're polite, but because you don't want to open yourself up to scrutiny. I don't function that way. I truly don't care what people think of me. That time I told Scott's wife that we weren't lovers wasn't because I wanted to do the decent thing. It came from a perverse pleasure in making her doubt her sanity. Come on, don't worry about how things might end up. Give me your ideas. Tell me your stories. Let me forge out of them something viable, something publishable. And we can both get out of it what we want. What do you want? I want to say goodbye, to leave you be now. I want, though, if you don't mind, just to give you a sample chapter of the most sententious horde book, just because it's in my head and I want it out of there and to leave me alone. You sound like a writer when you speak like that, about needing to get things out. But you tell me that you're not. The thing about emails is that it's almost impossible to read the sender accurately. The tones of voice, the inflections, they're all lost. What might be said in a sardonic manner comes across with insouciance. I don't know whether you want me to woo you or not. Just finish the Hesiod story and give me the historic details of the Regency girls. Why throw me a sample chapter? That's no use to anyone. I know, but it's all I ask you. I don't want anything else but to give you this chapter. The Hesiod story, well, my part in it is ending. Mariah must find a place that accepts her where there's no stain on her from her background. Nathan and Elizabeth must fight between two cultures, and they must face tragedy and loss before the story is complete. Dominic must accept that he can't control the lives of others. There will be a necessary cataclysm at the end. I've written the ending, but I've held it back because I think you should do it. Anyway, it's probably no good. The book never was. You could do so much better. Take it and improve it. Own it. Fine, fine, whatever. It's always been your story. I'm happy to fine-tune it when the time comes. But the most sententious horde is mine. I can see them, hear them. I'm worried that I'll be blown off course by your notion of how these girls should be. I don't want your imagination clouding my vision. But, Hilary, I must ask you, how did you know that my first husband's name was Doug? You mentioned him in an earlier email. I've been careful not to name him because he has quite a high profile. I didn't want to drag him into this correspondence. Did I accidentally let it slip? I don't recall doing so. How did you know? I think it's about time we met our most sententious horde of ladies. I'm sending an attached document. Please open it. <laughs> Thank you.
Hillary was played by Rebecca Charles. Monica by Georgina Sutton. The male narrator was Mark Lingwood. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio. But she betrayed me, came the persistent Lord. yell within him, pushing his tears to the surface. His mother bent closer. Whatever it is that ails you, my boy, you can be sure that it does not ail her. She has been brought up to get the better of you. It's in her blood. His eyes widened. His heart stopped. How could she understand? 